Hello, this is Jay Scott, and you are listening to The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's having a good day. What's going on, everybody? Hope everyone is listening to music they love, turned on to something new, or enjoying something they've listened to before. We'd like to welcome back Chris Bishop back to the podcast. Chris was on a previous episode discussing physical versus digital format and how we absorb music. Brought him back to the show to discuss the impact of Napster versus Metallica back in 2000. What's going on, Chris? So much, Jay. Thanks a lot for having me back on. This is a great topic. I'm excited. Yeah, it's an interesting topic that I've always changed my point of views over time. You know, like maybe like 10 years ago, I felt differently about it than I do now. When it first happened, I was more angry at Metallica because maybe I didn't understand what the whole blow up was about. You know, when you started the file peer-to-peer file sharing in 2000 when Napster was around and probably at the height of its popularity, it was awesome. You know, you were a music fan and you were able to get music for free. And at the time, that was 19 years ago, I was in my 20s and I didn't understand what I was doing and how it impacted the artist that I loved. I just felt it was awesome and, and I could get any song that I wanted or most songs that I wanted. And it was kind of like making an endless mixtape that we used to do when we were younger. What was your right. what was your initial thoughts when Napster came to be? Well, uh, full disclosure, I never actually used Napster. I tried and it, it was just it took so long, you know, around dial-up and stuff like that. So, you know, I just didn't, frankly, have the patience. And and plus, you know, I've always had an awesome stereo. So more about quality of sound than how much I pay for it. But I followed the, uh, the trajectory of Napster pretty closely. And my, my first impression was, you know, holy crap, this is a, you know, a hand grenade. It being thrown into this, uh, you know, traditional business model. You know, the labels have always sort of practiced sort of hand-picking artists through the A&R, you know, the artists and repertoire development process, and then, you know, relentlessly marketing those artists and, and then squeezing content, you know, uh, limiting access to content, um, prop up artificially high prices for their products. So my response was, you know, well, good for the people, man. Take it back. Music should be uh, should be available for people to listen to. You know, certainly the copyright issue was huge. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to play out, but I, I think it's great that, you know, that people can listen to lots of different stuff without having to pay list price, you know, 18, 19 bucks for a CD just to hear, you know, one or two tracks that they like. So, you know, the Metallica lawsuit came down in 2000. I was like, that is a bad look, Lars. <laughs> you know, I remember there was a website called you know, paylars.com. I mean, there was this huge backlash against them. And I remember seeing a, a video clip of a fan saying, this is probably the most unhit thing I've ever heard a big rock star do. I think he came off, you know, looking pretty, you know, pretty petty and all that. But he was right. Copyrights were being infringed by this, by this software platform. He's even stated in interviews over the last few years how there is some regret with how they approached the whole situation. 
they basically, it was, you know, shoot first, ask, ask questions later. They didn't really understand the process and, and what it meant to people. And I don't think anybody did. I don't think there was any artist or band that understood what was happening and how it affected them. They knew it was going to affect them negatively, especially in the bottom line and in the, and in the pocketbook. I don't think anybody knew how it was going to change the face of music um, in terms of how we absorb it. You know, but I think there were people on one side that just felt, oh, it was just for people that just wanted to get, like you said, one or two songs off an album. And then there was still going to be your hardcore, they're going to buy the, the, the CD anyway group as well. I think there's a little bit on that at both sides, but now more than ever, as we talked before about the physical versus digital, more and more people are streaming and that kind of stemmed from Napster. Who knows if that technology would be here today if it wasn't for that? I don't know. No one can really answer that. I do think Metallica was right in in regards to the copyright infringement. Lars has stated in interviews that it was more about not getting their permission. It was more about seeing a song that they had recorded that was in their vaults and all of a sudden showing up on radio stations and and on Napster, people sharing it, and people had it before they even released it, and that was the song. Yeah, I believe that was uh, I Disappear. Was yeah, that, was the from the Mission Impossible track. soundtrack. They, were, they had recorded it, mm-hmm. and then they realized that their whole back catalog was being traded. Right or wrong, I, I tend to agree with Lars now as I'm – older now and understand what the argument was about. These artists do work very hard at perfecting their craft and writing a song and making an album. And for them to lose that revenue, to lose that money is a big deal. I mean, say what you want, you know, Oh, they're the millionaires are just greedy. Yeah. I, I understand that point, but also they did, put the work in and they did put the effort in to bring the music to you, the music that you enjoy, they should be paid for it and they should be paid handsomely for it. There is a value to music on both sides. There's a value to the fan and there's a value to the artist making the music. Yeah. I, I think the you know, part of, part of this is there's a difference between a blockbuster artist and you know, an unsigned band or, you know, sort of a you know, lesser uh, known, not particularly popular artists. So for Metallica, you know, this represented a gigantic threat. I mean, they, were, they were a huge band. You know, I remember when you know, the Black Album came out, it debuted at number one. I mean, these guys, you know, were on a lot of records. The status quo was was serving them very well, and they'd come up through that system. But you know, there are other examples. You know, there's a a band during the Napster period called Dispatch which was an East Coast band, no label affiliation. And they actually found success through Napster. I remember seeing an, uh, an interview with these guys. And, you know, they said, you know, we've been doing our thing on the East Coast. And, you know, we built our fan base. We get about you know, 500 people a night. And then we went out to, to California where we never had any promotion. You know, it had no radio play or anything. And we showed these gigs and there's thousands of people who all discovered them on the Napster platform. For a band like that, that was a springboard to a, to a career. I mean, frankly, I'd never heard of Dispatch and you probably haven't either. <laughs> it's not like they went on to become a blockbuster artist. But. Yeah, but that is probably the, the biggest positive of, of the whole 
streaming and the file sharing era, right? Is artists that would never get discovered before that were great bands and great musicians now getting discovered, now having an audience, now finding an audience through word of mouth. I mean, that's really how a lot of these bands became popular in the seventies and eighties. It was word of mouth. You know, you didn't have the digital era back then of people being able to find your music and play your music anywhere, anytime. And they relied on people making mixtapes, you know, small little blurbs and magazines or, you know, a friend of a friend who borrowed this album from this guy who gave it to that guy who, who, you know, put it on four mixtapes for these four guys. And, it, and that's just how it exploded. And I think Metallica was, was one of those bands that benefited from that old school way of sharing music. And this was more of a digital way of making that happen, but it just got completely yeah, out of control. Right. Let's not forget the uproar about uh, home taping that, uh, you know, predated the whole Napster thing. Remember, the music industry was all had their panties in a bundle about home taping, right? Right. You know, and Metallica benefited from from that era where people were sharing, you know, mixtapes and just tapes of, uh, you know, of records that technically illegally copied. So copyright is a, you know, is, is a long of colored history in the music business. But I think it's also important to, to remember or at least think about what the Napster guy's intent was. You know, Sean Fanning you know, was a kid. He was 14, 15 years old when he started working on the software. And he was interested in finding rare, like, bootleg stuff, you know, according to him. that's His, his intent never was, you know, to... You didn't say, here's a great way that we can screw the music industry and, you know, cheat artists out of their copyright. I mean, he wasn't a pirate. He was just a music fan and, and a tech head kid. The whole thing, you know, really blew up, you know, at that period of, uh, of our history in sort of the dot-com era um, and became something far broader than, than what he ever intended. And Sean Parker... Uh, you know, who was famously portrayed by Justin Timberlake in the uh, the Social Network film about Facebook. He kind of came along and had this vision about uh, you know connecting people, creating communities on the internet. At that time, you know, in the late '90s, you know, we really didn't have what we have today. Certainly, with social media, and these guys met on uh, you know something called IRC. I, I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. internet relay chat so it was like just a bunch of you know internet chat rooms joining these chat rooms and that was how people connected it was a it was a more cumbersome uh sort of process than we have today parker's vision was more about connecting people through music that they love so his vision was a little bit broader and again you know, neither one of these guys set out to be pirates they weren't trying to steal anybody's anything and they ended up revolutionizing an industry that they didn't even understand. So I think it's important to remember that too. There wasn't like a the attack of the pirates the way the music industry sort of tried to to portray Napster. Um, so I, I think that's a, kind of an important uh, piece of the story um, to keep in mind. I was a big bootleg collector too years mm-hmm. ago, and I still pick them up here now and then. Um, but I used to love finding 
good quality bootlegs of live shows of bands that I liked, especially those of like Van Halen or Led Zeppelin, who didn't really have any live material for you to enjoy their songs live. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Led Zeppelin only had The Song Remains the Same, which was basically a movie soundtrack, but never really mm-hmm. captured the essence of Zeppelin live. Van Halen didn't have any live recordings. And there were bands that had this had this large, extensive catalog of bootlegs or bootleg catalog. And it was enticing, you know, to go to the back room of a record store. If you got to know the guys at the local record store, you get to get invited to the back room where there are boxes of bootlegs and you could listen to them and decide which ones were good quality and, and which ones that you wanted to get, uh, you know, from different tours and different set lists. So that was always a big thing for me. You know, it, was it hurting the artist? Probably in terms of, you know, their, their, their pocketbook and their bottom line. But, you know, when you're 16, 17, early 20s, you don't really care that much about it. And also, too, it, it added to your fandom of, of the band, right? You, you, you did this because you love the band and you were still going to buy, buy everything they released anyway. Right. I mean, people that go out and buy rare bootlegs or rarities are not just going to buy that and never enjoy the band's material that they release officially. Right. No, you're buying that stuff because you're already there. You're already at that level of I need everything these guys ever released and I'm going to make sure I find the ones that I want. So, yes. So I I was a big bootleg collector and I still have an extensive bootleg collection. And I understand that that was. Yeah, there are also. uh there are also non-commercially available different versions of recordings. For instance, uh, Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes, the album version is, you know, whatever, three and a half minutes long, but there was also an eight-minute version that was never released. So stuff like that, you know, non-commercially available, you know, stuff that we would, you know, find in the bonus tracks on, you know, later CD releases and, you know, and now digital albums. Um, You know, so there was, a lot of that kind of thing. And that was initially, you know, sort of the idea behind Napster, you know, for people to be able to share stuff like that. And I would say that the artists would never have cared about bootleg taping. That's just more people getting a chance to hear their stuff. And it's more of the music industry that was, uh, you know, in a bundle about, uh, you know, about bootleg taping as well. Yeah. Um, I remember, sure it's, you know, it's illegal. I, yeah, no, no. I remember going to record conventions. They used to have one, and I think they still do, but I think it's quite different now. But they used to have a record convention in the Chicago area once every month, and you could buy old vinyl, you know, old music memorabilia, posters, comic books, whatever. Um, and then there'd be some bootleg dealers, and that's the place that you'd go to to get your to get your fix, to get your stuff. And a couple of times they got raided by the feds. Feds came in mm-hmm. and arrested the, the bootleg dealers or anyone selling merch that was bootlegged or anything like that. They came in and they took it serious. There was probably two or three times that, that happened. And now the show's evolved where they still sell the stuff there. They still sell the bootlegs, but you've get, but it's like literally under the table. Like you have to know the dealer. Like you can't just walk up to mm-hmm. a dealer and like, hey, do you got any bootlegs? And yeah, that that's like right. no, they're gonna say no. But yeah, that that was happening a lot in the nineties, um, early two thousands. 
before mm-hmm. this all started because now once this started, everything got put online. Everything was able to be shared. And I get it too. You know, like if you wanted to get one song off an album that of an artist that you didn't like, but you thought this one song was pretty catchy, I get the the motivation to get that song for free. Like, I don't want to go buy this band's album or this artist's album because I only like this one song. I get it. Then there's also the quality that you mentioned, you know, in the first part of the conversation. I remember downloading songs and one song sounded great. Like, you know, it sounded perfect. The other sound song sounded way too loud. It was, you know, it had way of a, a louder noise to it. And then another one would be completely muffled. So the quality was hit or miss. And mm-hmm. I've said this before, and we talked, we talked about it in, our, in a previous episode that you were on. Streaming services still do not have the level of quality that a CD has. The positive thing about CDs right now is I read an article in Billboard either earlier this week, late last week, about the new Taylor Swift album and the new Tool album and how both of those recordings have seen an increase in people buying the actual physical copy and CDs, so much so that it's causing the record companies to rethink, are CDs still viable? Which I think is great, you know, if, if, if they're having that discussion, because I still think that there is a huge audience that still wants the physical copy. And there are bands Absolutely. in, in, in musicians. Collectors. Yeah, collectors and, and whatnot, but... Just they want that physical connection. And that's been changed. I mean, Napster really has has slow it's I mean, what, we're 19 years after the, the lawsuit. So, you know, you figure 20 years since it was since it came out. We're mm-hmm. at that point now. We are at a breaking point where I think there was what, one CD manufacturer that stopped manufacturing actual physical CDs, you know, for the artists to put their music on. I think that happened last year mm-hmm. or earlier this year. So we are at that point where it's going to have to, it's going to come soon where people are just going to stop making CDs unless it's a collector edition, unless it's a special edition, mm-hmm. or they're only going to carry it at their shows, the physical copy, because now you have the streaming services. Now you're in the digital age. Napster changed the face. They, they brought all this in on, upon the music industry, whether they wanted to or not. And, Ever since then, the music industry has been behind the curve. They can't keep up with the improvements in technology and the improvements in streaming and the streaming services and how people get paid and whatnot. And as we uh, talked about in the uh, the other episode, uh, you know, hip hop and rap artists have pretty much abandoned physical too. So that's uh, that's not to be underestimated because that those styles of music those are the dominant genres and terms of sales and popularity but you're right i mean napster sort of uh broke the seal on you know what i would say the filtering of you know music consumers versus music collectors right if all you're going to do is stream you're not a collector that's not collecting even you know we've, we've learned in the post mp3 era that mp3s aren't, that's not collecting you know now i got like massive hard drive terabytes of music and it's unmanageable that's not a collection that's a mess so i think people are kind of going back uh a little bit you know the vinyl resurgence is is great evidence of that but also you know uh what you're talking about the tool thing really interesting with that packaging it's insane 
what the package is. You know, it's a video screen. I mean, it's, but you're right. And the Blockbuster article like that can, can afford to do that. Uh, it puts together a very expensive package and still leaves you at number one. Uh, you know, where you know, are, are happy to have their music available to more people you know, to discover uh, kind of thing. You know, like just the other day, you know, I mentioned uh, Glam Skanks and you're able to, you know, post that right out to your, uh, your community, you know, video of a, of a tune for people to check out. I mean, Glam Skanks love that, right? I mean, more people will show up at their show. Maybe they'll buy it you know, buy a CD or, you know, whatever. Um, so there, there really is, a, you know, a, there, there's a hierarchy here that, that plays into this as well. You know, blockbuster artists versus just your average everyday lunch bucket artist. Yeah, and I'm more of a, whenever I think of stuff like this, I always try to to think of the big picture. And when you're talking about new artists, which I think the digital age has been very, kind to on one side, right? Because they can get their music to people all over the world and at a very minimal cost. I was mm-hmm. I, I just did the interview a couple weeks ago with Carl from Lachinga. He talked about, you know, when he when they're packaging their music and sending it out, they're sending it out to people in Russia and South America and Japan and all over. And he's like, and that's really, really cool. And that is awesome for a band like Lachinga or a band that, you know, is trying to get a bigger audience. That's a great, great tool. The other aspect of it, though, is and where it hinders new artists is how much money they're making off of the recording. So it used to be, you know, an artist would get, you know, upfront money from the record label. They would get so much percentage of the sales. And they were, you know, living high on the hog. You know, if you're a band like Metallica or any of those bands in the 80s and, and, and that had a good, decent deal that didn't, you know, give away their life. Mm-hmm. But they, they were able to make a comfortable living, more than comfortable living in some aspects, based on the recorded music that they were selling. That doesn't happen anymore, right? Money is made through touring. And in order to tour, you either got to get on a good bill or you've got to connect with an audience and get people to the shows. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a whole, that's a whole nother conversation is actually now getting people to the show with things like YouTube and everything, how that's affecting people. So mm-hmm. in one aspect, yes, you're able to get your music out and record music and have people listen to it from all over the world. However, if you want to make any sort of living off of music, and be a career musician and be a rock star. You got to tour and you have to tour constantly. You may be able to only take a month, two months off to go and, and basically you're recording new music during that time. But you constantly mm-hmm. have to be on the road selling merch, selling your product, getting the guarantee. You know, once you get to a certain level, you can make percentages off of beer sales and whatnot, like some bands do, and that's all great. But you really have to mm-hmm. work at it now. I mean, I was just talking to someone about Blackberry Smoke, who, you know, I did an episode released earlier this week on their music and their popularity. Those guys are constantly on the road. I mean, I'm going to see them next Friday for the fourth time in the last year in, in the Chicagoland area. There are many bands that, that, that do that throughout. I mean, 
there's other bands that come two, three times a year where it was before where many bands would come once like every year, every nine, 10 months and people would come to the shows, but now you have to get out there and you've got to play to make any money. So yes, it's great that they can get to an audience and extend their music out there and have a, a massive reach of creating new fans. But on, on the other hand, how many of those people that have that reach are able to put together a tour and tour across the country, tour overseas, and have enough of an audience to make any money? Right. Because that's you still need, yeah, you still need the label juice behind you to be able to do a European tour or an extensive US tour with a lot of production value. But you, then you're absolutely right about uh, you know, streaming, for instance, you know, helps you know, up and coming bands get their music in front of more people, but you got to get on these services. How do you do that? If I'm a new band, I don't know. Who do I call? You know, I mean, if I don't have a manager, I'm probably doing it on my own. So getting on these services is a challenge. And then once you're on there, you know, these streaming rates, I mean, these are fractions of a cent per stream. You know, I just was looking at digital music news and, you know, they're, they're, uh, sort of benchmark is you know how many streams does a does a band need to to have to earn the U.S. monthly minimum wage of one thousand four hundred seventy two dollars yeah. a month and you know so Napster you know the old you know essentially the Rhapsody service uh, pays the highest rate and that's like a cent and a half uh, per stream so you need. 75,000 total plays uh, to earn that monthly minimum. Uh, for Apple, uh, you need 200,000. You know, you get down to YouTube, you know, and you gotta, you got to have 2.1 million plays to make the U.S. minimum wage monthly wage. So it's, you know, I don't know how much upcoming bands were making off the of physical. I, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't have a, a good gauge on that. But you know, it's the, the odd thing to me is that if somebody streams a song a million, if a song gets streamed a million times, it's a million listens. You know, right, right. <laughs> that's a high level of engagement. You know, whereas you know, if you just look at physical, I don't know how many times I bought something, listen to it once and then put it on the shelf and never listen to it again. You know? So it's odd to me that, you know, fans are getting this high level of engagement with streaming, but being paid less, you know, than more passive sort of model, you know, with physical. You know? So once again, it's the suits that are making the money, you know, and they love this recurring revenue stream. God, I mean, Goldman Sachs just you know, released a report about the music industry. Well, we used to be really, you know, bearish on the music industry. Stay away from it. But now we love it, you know, because they love these recurring revenue streams. And, you know, when you're paying 10 bucks a month, 12 bucks a month, I mean, that's a, a lot of money that they can count on. You know, they don't have to worry if you're going to go out and buy a CD. You're already signed up, you know. Yeah. Every month they're hitting your credit card. Um and then they can start slicing, slicing and dicing those revenue streams too, and you know, securitizing them in the same way that they do with you know mortgages that led us to you know the financial crisis of the last decade. So, you know, this is 
this is all very complicated. And it's funny that in the wake of Napster, I mean, everybody wrote off the labels, right? Labels are done. They're dead. You know, technology has killed them off. And ironically, labels are stronger than ever now as a result of, of streaming revenues, these recurring revenue streams. Um, so I, I think that's a sort of an interesting twist, uh, you know, based on the uproar at the time. Um, you know, Billy Corgan, I you know, saw a comment from him. He said, the future of music is free. You can't stop the technology. The revolution has taken place. Well, that sounded, you know, stage-like at the time, but now it's laughable. <laughs> you know, it's not free. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're paying even more and having nothing left over. You know, you don't you don't have anything on the shelf. You don't have anything to listen to if you stop your you know subscription to one of these services. Well, in that so. conversation I had with Carl Spackler from Lachinga, he also said that you have to, in order for them to get any money from streaming services, there also has to be a time that the song has to be played. I think it's like a minute. So if the song doesn't, if someone skips over it um, in a minute or whatever the time is, uh, they don't get anything. So in the age of people not being able to pay attention more than two seconds and, you know, (laughs) clicking and skip, 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 uh, that also affects the artist too, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So if someone clicks on a song, if they only listen to the first 30 seconds, like, oh, I've heard this song too much over the last couple of days. I'm going to skip to the next one. They don't get anything. They don't get any money. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. And so it's almost like they're monetizing skips, right? Like if you listen to Pandora, if you have a Pandora account, you get a certain number of skips per, I don't know, day or whatever. And then if you want more skips, then you got to do the paid version. I mean, so it's funny that they're actually you know, monetizing, skipping <laughs> in the, in the age of short attention spans, right? It's probably not a bad idea. Right. Right. And, and yes, I mean, the, the music industry is going to find out ways to make their, make their money. Right. And it took them mm-hmm. a while. I still think they're behind the curve on technology where now they're just kind of, I think they've kind of buckled it down a little bit with the month to month services that you pay for. Like you said, you know, you're going to get that $12, $14, whatever it is every month from a listener, whether it's Spotify or Apple or whomever. I mean, I, I, I do subscribe to Amazon music mm-hmm. and you know, the only reason why I do is if I'm traveling or, you know, if I'm sitting in my bed at night doing something on a computer, I can just click on it and just play the artist that I like. But I also, mm-hmm. but honestly, based on my CD collection, I still go out and buy the physical copies of the CDs. I mean, the streaming service for me is just for the convenience, right? Just for, Hey, I want to, you know, listen yeah. to, you know, this, or if I'm, if I pre-ordered a CD and I'm waiting for it, and this just happened with the latest Pete Yorn uh, CD caretakers. I pre-ordered it. It didn't arrive when the day the record came out. So I went on Amazon music and I listened to it, but I already had the CD. It was already in the mail. I mean, so to speak, and I was already getting it, but I just wanted to check it out before I got it. I think everyone is at the point where they have some sort of streaming service just because yeah, even if all you do is log on to YouTube, you know, right, right. But it's just like, yeah, I was just going to say that you know, as a collector, I, I mean, I, I definitely, I like the convenience of it, as you said, but I also like preview sort of aspects. As a collector, I, I I don't have unlimited space. 
you know, surprisingly enough, the, the cost of the music isn't as much of an issue as the space that I have available to store these physical copies. Right. Um, so I like, you know, I like to be able to, to listen to something, give it a, you know, essentially give it a spin, um, you know, the same way I might, like if I went to a friend's house, like back in the day, you yeah. know, and they'd spin it, I'd be like, oh, that's great, man. I like that. And I'd go buy it, you know, so now I can, you know, I can try it out. I always tell a story, like back, uh, yeah, I don't know, this was probably 15 years ago. I got on Rolling Stone, you know, just send him a copy list somehow, you know, I, I, was, I was getting Rolling Stone, you know, for free. So I'm reading about all this new, new music, but I'm not hearing it. I just started working you know, with iTunes and buying downloads. And, but I'm like, you know, AFI, this sounds interesting, but I don't really want to buy, you know, this record, but I sure want to hear it. Um, and that's when I got, originally got my Rhapsody account was just so that I could hear this music that I was reading about. You know, and stuff that I really liked. I went and, you know, and bought a physical copy to be C- CD exclusively. Now I also, you know, will we'll buy vinyl as well as CD. So I use it sort of as a, as a collecting tool as well. And when you go to a show, my first thing that I do is go to the merch table and look for a CD to buy the band. Sometimes I buy two of them. It means they're 10, 15 bucks. Sometimes five if it's like an EP or a special edition. And there are things that they do have at the merch table that are not sold online that you can't find, which is really cool. Um, there's also stuff that like, if you try to go on Discogs or on eBay, you know, they've got versions of it that are a couple hundred bucks. Well, there it is for 10 bucks right there. I mean, I remember, I think this past year I went to go see Richie Cotton and there was a CD that I have not been able to get, um, without entertaining the possibility of spending, you know, 50, 60 bucks on it. And then here I, Mm -hmm. here I am at, in front of the merch table, looking at the same CD for $12, which is great. I've had experiences where I've yep. gone to live shows and the bands on stage, when you go back are not even selling the physical copy. Either they don't have it. They didn't make it or it didn't get delivered yet during the tour. Um, so they're making that money. Obviously they got to pay for the production of the CD. They got to pay for the money to make it, to produce it. But when you buy something, directly at a show, I mean, that money essentially goes straight to their pocket. I mean, obviously the merchandise like t-shirts and, you know, bandanas or wristbands or pins or buttons that goes directly to the artist. There's a cost to the CDs. I think that's more than the others, but it's still theoretically going right to them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you, know, you, and you might get an opportunity to have a sign. So like, you know, the, the, you know, we mentioned Glam Skanks, I mentioned a couple minutes ago. So when we were at their show, uh, they had you know, their most recent release, uh, which is, I think, a major label release, a large indie. Um, but their first record with their old lead singer is not available, but they were selling it. So we were able to get you know the old stuff as well as the new stuff, and we got both of them signed by all four band members, you know, which is cool. I mean, it on the off chance they hit it big, you know, here I am. I've got, you know, I knew them when, man, I got their autographs, you know? So, you know, that's a, that's a benefit of, you know, buying the, you know, the disc at the show as well. You get a chance to maybe meet the artist, get it, get an autograph. Getting back to Metallica 
and mm-hmm. you know being the face of the resistance to Napster and file sharing. There were other artists too involved. There were record companies. I think Dr. Dre was involved at some point with with his music, and I think yeah, and I think um, was it A and M Records that went after them too. But Metallica really was the face of the fight. Do you think there's certainly been- the highest profile? I mean, the RI, the RIAA, you know, the Recording Industry Association of America, you know, brought suit against Napster on behalf of all the labels mm-hmm. as well. Do you think there's but nobody been, knows who those people are? Everybody knows who Lars is, right? Right, right, right. And I guess that's my question. You know, Metallica, you know, is still selling out stadiums and still has and is still very popular. Do you think it's had an everlasting effect on how people view them? Do you think people have gotten past that? Do you think people still? Because I do see Twitter comments every now and then of people bagging on Lars or bagging on Metallica for what they did. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it has had more of a lasting impact, I think, on how people view Lars. Aside from the Napster thing, I mean, Lars is just kind of a tool from what I, I, I under, you know, have read about him. And, uh, but I don't, I don't think, you know, I, I mean, Metallica, they're still hugely popular, but they're not on the cutting edge. I mean, they're not the next thing. They're, the, they're, they're, they're almost a classic rock act at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think all the the, the hand wringing about oh you know the record industry is suing their own customers and they'll never recover from this you know or you know Metallica they're going to go down the tubes because you know they're suing their fans or you know whatever that just kind of didn't happen it didn't play out that way you know I think there was a little bit of negative backlash on, on Metallica you know at first but you know now people look back and it's like Oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that. I forgot all about that. You know. Um, well, they actually yeah, went yeah, after. They went after the people that were downloading their music. I mean, I think it was what, like three hundred thousand names of people who. You know, they, yeah, two hundred. They actually printed out. I mean, this was a big publicity stunt, right? I mean, Lars pulls up to the Napster offices with this, you know, phalanx of vans, and they printed out every name, you know, quarter of a million names, you know. Of, uh, of people who have violated their copyrights using the Napster platform. And, uh, you know, that's, I've seen some some uh, old footage, you know, news footage of, of that. And it's just, it's a circus. You know, there's fans, there's media, you know, and I guess the Napster guys, like Fanning and uh, Parker, like slipped out the back and went and, like, watched it all from the street just to kind of see uh, what was going on. And But apparently, you know, when Lars went into the building, then he went up to their offices and, and he said to them, Hey, you know, nothing personal guys, you know, and from the Napster guys perspective, they're like, well, what? I mean, well, why didn't we talk? You know, why didn't you call us? And, you know, this, this was, this is the theme that, that comes up in, you know, a lot of the retrospectives from the Napster guys is, look, we wanted to work with the, with the music industry, you know, Sean Fanning, you know, had the vision to create something that didn't exist. You know, digital distribution of music, peer-to-peer file sharing, decentralized file distribution. None of that existed. This teenage created it. He invented it, you know? And instead of trying to work with this technology and figure out how, you know, it could you know, be good for business, good for fans, good for artists, 
the music industry didn't understand it and they just shut it down. And these guys all share the same response. They're like, we knew that something was coming, but we had no idea. It never occurred to us that they were going to go for full shutdown mode, you know, and just try and destroy it. They, they assumed that the music industry would embrace it, you know, as a new opportunity. I mean, gosh, they had, you know, 26, over almost 30 million users when they shut down. So that's a huge market that you're just turning it off. Like, nope, sorry. And that's, that's a, a serious lack of vision and betrays the fact that the music industry is more about lawyers than it is about artists. You know, the music industry defends itself, uh, you know, through uh, illegal means. You know, that's that's what they do. Weren't there also people that were being being brought into court and being arrested for like downloading thousands and thousands of songs? I do remember having uh, not on. even thousands and thousands, Jay. I mean, it, it was it. It's kind of like all those Metallica names that Bart with. If you downloaded one song, you were considered a pirate. You were considered in violation. You know, and uh, they they sued like eighteen thousand average American citizens. And I guess the the, the average payout, the average settlement was four thousand dollars. Can you imagine somebody saying to you right now, "Yeah, you got to give us four grand for that uh, couple of songs that that you downloaded"? It's absurd. It seems like there should have been a, a serious backlash that did destroy the, the labels for that. I mean, there was, you know, they went after single moms. You know, a lot of these kids are teenagers, right, on college campuses. But, you know, there, there was even a famous case where this elderly woman got sued. For, you know, it turns out that she hadn't even down, you know, used the Napster service. But, but they didn't care. They were going after everybody. And, it's you know, it's one of those things where it's like, Let's go after, you know, everybody, all types of people so that nobody feels safe, you know, with that sort of punitive, you know, kind of uh, legal approach. You know, and, you know, I think by rights, the labels, you know, should have been penalized. For and, they probably, and they were for, you know, maybe a, a decade, but, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, they're, they're back with a vengeance now uh, with streaming. And, you know, all all the people that, you know, were wringing their hands about, about this are, are all, we're all streaming. <laughs> you know, we're, so we're all doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, I just think that, yeah, you know, and I've said this multiple times over multiple episodes when I get in this kind of conversation with the physical versus digital, this was the beginning of the end with how people absorb music. And I think the biggest thing that's come out of it, and it is a negative is how, the art of music is absorbed by people. And I think there's less of an appreciation of what you're listening to and who you're listening to now, because there is no album cover. No, anyone that, that downloads an album off of Amazon or iTunes or whatever looks at what the album cover looks like. Right. I mean, they only probably see that in, in articles on Rolling Stone or whatever music site, yeah, you see the cover of the album. Thumbnail. Right, it's just a right. thumbnail now. So in that aspect, and I think that is what is the disconnect between now how record companies are making music versus the music fan. It's it, There are not a lot of new 
loyal fans being brought up now, right? Everyone who listens, all the young kids now are listening. I even see it with, you know, my son and his his friends that, yeah, they're friends of bands, but they don't have that, like, I need everything by this band and I need everything. And I, I'm sure that's out there, but it was so commonplace years ago where if yeah, you... I think now they're more fans of tracks. Right. You know, like, yeah, I want to hear Old Town Road, but, I mean, who really gives a damn about Little Nas X's, the rest of his catalog, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, instead of, you know, we've, we've talked about deep cuts, right? And that was, you know, that's been a subject on some of the polls that I run is the deep cuts don't get the recognition that the more popular songs, because I don't think that there is a appreciation in, in general. So like artists now release a, a, a track, they'll release one or two tracks. And then a few months later, they'll drop another track. So there's no album there's no you know 10 songs 12 songs where hey man this is this third song is really great not a lot it's not the most popular but it's probably their best you know we talked about sequencing in our in the last episode and i still want to do a show on that but think about how that has been changed by the digital era there is i mean it's basically now albums i imagine now that yeah there's someone probably picking out the order of songs but there's no like lift there's no autopilot that an album a good album has where once you take off you're kind of on that same trajectory throughout the whole album it just kind of lifts you up there's no you know there's some dips mm-hmm. in some albums but yeah. it's all based That's on sequencing it's like the, 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 you know the, the flow of the of the album there's none of that anymore because you don't need to do it you know i mean if you're only going to release five songs a lot of bands now are releasing eps like some of the newer bands that I really like, you know, the Dirty Honeys, the Joyous Wolves, they they release six, seven song EPs, which is great because mm-hmm. they need that material to get onto a tour, get onto a bill, start making some money. But even full length albums are becoming a thing of the past for the most part, you know, I mean, or. Yeah, and I think, you know, go ahead, I'm sorry. Or, or like Metallica, you know, releases Hardwired and that's a double album that's got, I don't know how many songs are on it. My, my son has it, but. They, that was their first album in four or five years, or probably even longer. Iron Maiden does the same thing. They, I mean, they don't release albums like they did before every two years, three years, because the cost of production, you know, doesn't equal what they're going to get back from it if they only release one or two songs, or they, you know, they release an album right. that only one or two songs get any popularity off of. That's right, and labels are signing artists to track deals, five track deals as opposed to five album deals too, in many cases. That's part of the Napster legacy, right? Is, you know, consuming tracks rather than albums. When, you know, that's the one thing I think that, you know, that Napster did do was it disaggregated albums. And you couldn't do that before. If you wanted to hear Life During Wartime by Talking Head, you had to buy Fear of Music. So in the Napster revolution you could just go download life during wartime and listen to that you didn't have to buy a little record and that that's a that's a big deal and you know that kind of set the stage for for where we are, we are now it's sort of almost back to the 50s right when the 50s were really a singles based era um you know we're kind of back to that and you know napster sort of lit the fuse on the destruction of of the album as we know it I miss those days, right? I mean, I, I still collect, yeah. you know, buy the CDs, but 
the idea that you can kind of peek into the artist's head and their mind of what they were thinking of when they recorded a full album. You know, like they they sat and they wrote these 10, 12 songs. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, they demoed them. They hammered them out. They recorded them. There were other songs that didn't make the record, but you could see the artist evolve from album to album. And that was so cool, right? You know, I mean, like you, you'd wait in anticipation. You'd see the article in the in the magazine that you were reading that such and such a band is releasing such and such an album on this such and such a date. And you would wait and you would say, I'm going to the record store like that day to get it. And you'd get it right. and you'd absorb it. You'd open it up. Out of the box. Right out of the box. You'd absorb it. You'd listen to all the tracks once. You'd listen to it again. Then you'd start to, after like the third or fourth listen, you'd start to formulate your opinions on what songs were your favorites and what's weren't. And then what was mm-hmm. really cool, and I love when this happens, is you could not like a song when it, you know, on the album. And then two years later, put that same album back on and hear it and be like, wow, that's it. I can't believe I didn't appreciate that before. That's a really good song. There was, mm-hmm. there's no, there's a relationship with the physical and digital um, aspect of the music, but there's also the evolution of the fan with your music. There's the appreciation of the song. There's the appreciation of the production of the recording, of how it's a staple in time of what and who and where you were around during that mm-hmm. moment. You know. Yeah, we, and yeah. CD is interesting because it's both physical and digital. Right. So the, the CD is, 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 you know, as much as I love it, is, is problematic because, you know, that this, you know, predating Napster, right? The CD, now you can skip, right? You couldn't, I mean, if you wanted to skip on a, on a vinyl record, get a, lift the needle, try and hit the next track right in the through, you know, or you had to you know, rewind the tape or forward, fast forward. So now with digital, it's Alex on here, skip on to the next one. And the other thing about CD that, that always disappointed me is that they're in the, the Red Book standard for C, for for the CD, there's something called Mode 5 subcodes. So that was where all the metadata was supposed to go. Metadata being uh, album title, artist, track names, track length, that kind of thing. You know, so the, the record companies that said that, Forget it. They never utilized it. Never utilized that, you know, that uh, you know uh, option to to include all the metadata. So you didn't really know what the names of tracks were even at that point. So if you're listening in the car, it's so funny now. Like if you listen to it, you know, to your phone through the car or listen to Sirius, you get you get metadata. You put a CD and it's like just track one. Thanks. That's real helpful. <laughs> you know, some so, do and some don't. You know, Not all of them do that though. Yeah, I mean, you know, there each disc has a has a unique thumbprint, and they've got these services that you know aggregate all the metadata, and then you know they, they recognize the thumbprints of the disc and, and make that make that available. But the other thing about the CD is it really, I mean, the music industry itself set the, the table for Napster by releasing all their music in a digital format that wasn't particularly well protected on the disc itself. So. You know, Napster wasn't a service that had, you know, the big server farm where all these tracks sat. No, as we've mentioned, it's peer-to-peer. So all these tracks sat on individual computers around the world, right? And how did those tracks get on those computers? From CDs that people ripped. 
you know? So the music industry sort of created this problem themselves by, you know, unleashing, you know, digital technology into the, into the world without really understanding what the ramifications could be, you know? So in a lot of ways, the Napster thing just sort of, you know, really amplified what was already happening with digital media in the music industry. So I think it's important to, to remember that, too. I mean, Sean Fanny could never have done what he did if the music industry hadn't, you know, rushed to introduce CDs so that then they could obsolete vinyl, right? So that then they could resell all their back catalog in a new format. Because that's the only thing that happens in these format shifts. The only people that win are the record labels. There's no, I mean, there's no need to kill off the format. Right? Why can't we all just get along? You know, mm-hmm. you can have vinyl, you can have CD, you can stream. I mean, and that's one of the cool things I think that we're moving into in this era is you know what I call multi-format generation kind of thing. Like my daughter, I've been collecting records since about the time she was born. You know, she music comes on a big round thing. It comes on a shiny disc. You know, it comes you know through her eye, a little pet tablet or whatever. You know, it comes through the radio. I mean, it's everywhere. You know, she doesn't care. It could be a hamster, and they're running on a wheel making the the sound. She, I mean, she just likes the music. So I think that's cool that you know now we're starting to see vinyl and CD and streaming and you know uh, high res files and stuff like that all existing together. And there, there is, there is some, you know, if if you know. If the Napster revolution exists anywhere today, it's kind of in the vinyl world, right? Because people who collect vinyl are buying a lot of used records. The record industry doesn't get any any money from that. Artists don't get any money from that. You know, we're just in this sort of underground community, you know, trading, uh, you know, trading music, not for free, but, you know, we set the value. And, you know, and the people who profit are the independent record stores. You know, obviously the music industry is now sort of insinuating itself back into there and they're pressing vinyl again. But there's, there's a lot of facets to this, uh, to, to the politics of format, you know. I just read an article a few weeks ago about how for the first time in decades, vinyl has surpassed CDs in terms of sales. Is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was like three or four weeks ago it came out where vinyl, there were more vinyl records sold last year than CDs, hmm. which is pretty crazy, you know? Yeah, that's insane. What do you think is next? You know, as we as we close down this discussion, you know, what do you think is, you know, the next thing that's around the corner in terms of technology, in terms of how we absorb music? Yeah, it's a... I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball so I could get fabulously wealthy. Uh, although the Napster guys didn't get fabulously wealthy for their massively disruptive technology. Um, well, I think one, one thing's for certain is that they're not going to strap music to a disc or tape ever again. There isn't going to be a new physical format, uh, at least not something that's propagated by you know, the recording industry. And that's one of the reasons, you know, we uh, talked briefly about, you know, my company getting ready to re- uh, 
to introduce a new CD player, a headphone-based CD player. And one of the reasons uh, that we're doing that and that we're excited about it is because CD is the last collectible format, as far as I'm concerned. You know, and it will have an Indian summer. It won't necessarily be exactly like vinyl, but, you know, if the Internet has taught us nothing, it's that if somebody made it, somebody's collecting it, right? So mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, this really high-resolution music that's available on a physical format right now for pennies almost uh, is going to go away, I think is, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, that's short-sighted. I mean, no one thought vinyl was going to come back when I was frisbeeing ACDC and Duran Duran records down my buddy's street back in 1990, you know? Um, so, so part of the, of what's next, I think is, you know, a resurgence of CD. You touched on that, you know, with the, uh, the success of the tool release and, and Taylor Swift. Um, you know, I hope high res streaming, uh, is next. I know Neil Young's archives online are, I mean, if you, if you're a Neil Young fan and you haven't, you know, dived into that a little bit, it's really cool. I mean, he's got high res streaming versions of, you know, all his archives and tons of stuff that was never released. So hopefully that's part of the future where these blockbuster artists just sort of have their own thing where you can go and, you know, maybe for a nominal monthly fee or whatever, uh, you know, listen in a high resolution, uh, stream or file format to stuff that is not, has not ever been commercially available. You're starting to see more streaming services come up. So hopefully some competition amongst these streaming services can create more opportunities for uh, music fans to hear more stuff. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that labels didn't succeed in setting up their own streaming services back in the day. You know, if you've got this massive back catalog of classic artists, you know, it would seem like that would be the way to go. I would, I think we'll continue to see the disaggregation of digital music. I mean, iTunes, the, the ironic thing to me is that Steve Jobs, who styled himself as a tech rebel, sort of a man of the people, took this technology back from the people and handed it back to the suits. The record labels were far more comfortable with one uh, distributor. And you know, jobs made them feel real comfortable with its closed architecture hardware and all that. They felt more protected. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm glad to see that Apple's stranglehold on, on music is starting to, that's starting to weaken a little bit. You know, so you have services like Amazon and, uh, even Spotify and, you know, and that type of thing. So hopefully, you know, as stuff, you know, kind of splinters a little bit, you know, there'll be a better deal for music fans and, you know, more opportunity for uh, artists to get paid. I would hope that that's part of what's next, you know, because I feel like artists are really kind of getting the short end of the stick as we we touched on uh, in the streaming era. So um, you can only, you know, put up with that for so long and people start going and doing other things. If you just can't make a living, you know, doing music, then you just won't do it. You go do something else. Um, so I hope that that's you know, sort of part of what's next is, uh, you know, 
giving some power back to the artists and the fans. And, and you know, that was the promise I think of Napster is that you know this was a victory for the little guy, and uh, unfortunately it hasn't quite played out like that. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that that can be uh, you know sort of part of the future. But from a tech standpoint, I really don't know. I don't. I mean, I guess it would have to be uh, some something new that comes along that then carry music and broadcast it. You know, I, I joked about, uh, you know, some telepathic file sharing, right? Like you and I can just stand next to each other and share the music between our brains, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, do you have thoughts on the technology side and where it might be going? You know, I, I always try to look at what the younger people are, are doing what really drives or what will, will really drive technology is how they get information. You know, they, they primarily use their phone. They, they, they have these, these iPads, you know, laptops are, are becoming less and less popular desktop uh, computers. Um, I should say desktop computers, (laughs) um, are, are almost, obsolete basically. And when's the last time you walked into someone's house and they had a desktop, they have a laptop, they have an iPad, they have their phone. So I think what's going to drive any new technology is how people get information. So like when somebody, you know, buys a phone, right. Um, you know, I think what you're going to start seeing is, you know, buy this phone and get the free download of the new Metallica album or, Hmm. Buy this phone and get. Yeah, I know Nokia tried something like that. Yeah. It was like a, a bundle mm-hmm. Nokia phones, like you know, back in the day. Yeah, or or sign up with Verizon and get exclusive content through that hmm. you can't get on the album of this artist or something like that. And I think that's going to start happening. And I think that's a revenue stream. That I think that's been untapped because you got cell phone companies, you got record companies that are making a lot of money. That I think it might even benefit the artist to say, hey, you know, I'll do that, but I want X amount of dollars to do that. And I think that's a good way for the mm-hmm. megastars to do it. Now, here's one thing that I think really needs to start happening. When these big stars or these big bands get these deals, right? How about giving a little crumbs to the unknown guys? Like, okay, you get access to my music, but here's like five other bands that are new that are going to be under my shell or under my umbrella, that if you get this service or if you buy this, you're going to have access to their music. I think that is something that I'd like to see happen, you know, where, because it's, it's very difficult for these new artists to get any traction on what they're doing. And I think it's going to take a big boy. You know, I I read an article about Mm -hmm. uh, possibly next year, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest touring together. I'm like, wow, that's going to be fantastic. It's going to be Priest's fiftieth uh, anniversary, and it's, Maiden's going to have a new album. This is going to be great. I'm totally going to check it out. And then I read where Testament is going to be the opener, and nothing against Testament. I think they're a great band, but why not fill that bill with an unknown or a band out of the UK mm-hmm. that's having trouble getting noticed? That's a really good band. Why not use it that way? You know, take that band on the road for. 30, 40 shows to get exposure. I don't think that happens enough. Um, I don't think Iron Maiden and Judas Priest need Testament to help them sell tickets. I don't think they, they, <laughs> they, they need that. 
you know? Just like if, like, no. you know, Journey and Def Leppard had Cheap Trick opening up for them on some tours. I don't think they need Cheap Trick to help them sell tickets. Bring an unknown. Bring yeah. an artist out there that's got one or two albums that's really good that, you know, you're both fans of, you know, both bands are fans of that they want people to be exposed about. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting off on a little bit of a rant here, but that needs to happen more. And, you know, if if one band has a has a specific or... You know, you you can only hear their music on Spotify. You can only hear Metallica's music on Spotify. Let's say, well, if you go purchase Spotify, not only do you get Metallica, but you've got six other bands access to their music as part of that bundle and help them get exposed. I think that needs to start happening a lot more. Um, and and I don't know if there's going to be it's like you said the technology, but I think it's going to be how we absorb information. You know, the, the more advanced phones get, the more advanced iPads get, the more you can, you know, get it on your watch now and, and get information off of your digital watch or whatever. Um, I think there's, you know, whatever keeps coming down the road and how people keep absorbing information. I was told years ago, if you want to know what's going to be successful, if you can predict what, just look around you, look around what people are doing. And sooner or later, what they're doing, the masses will start to enjoy or the masses are starting to enjoy. That's what, you know, you should always, you know, if you're investing money, you know, I mean, well, what should I, what should I buy stock in? Well, look around you. What are you enjoying? What are you utilizing? And if that is a product that is good, that you think it's got ever, you know, that, that that's got a long last, long shelf life, then that's what you go with. So, um, yeah. and as you mentioned before, watch what the, what younger people are doing. Right. I mean, the whole Napster thing, you know, was blowing up on college campuses and amongst the teenagers going running home to watch Total Request Live and then going on Napster and down, you know, downloading the tunes, you yeah. know, so you keep an eye on, you know, what the what the kids are doing. Can I finish one last comment about, about the Napster legacy? Absolutely. Finish? Okay. Um, so the... A lot, you know, we even started this conversation on the premise of, you know, what is the impact, excuse me, of Napster on the music industry? Totally appropriate. But in many ways, the the true legacy of Napster is social media. The the technology that that Sean Fanning created was then taken by Sean Parker. You know, so after the Napster debacle, he, you know, he did Friendster. Right, so that's more of a social media, social networking type thing. And then he went on to be the, you know, the first president of Facebook. And you know, so in a lot of ways, the the internet that we have today is Sean Parker's vision of the internet that started, you know, as a teenager on IRC, you know, with Fanning, you know, writing, you know, the the code and creating the platform. So, you know, the Napster legacy is far beyond, I think, you know, the impact that it had on the music industry and, you know, just the peer-to-peer thing and the decentralized uh, file system, you know, created uh, this platform that social media, you know, has been built on. So I think it's important to, to, you know, to look at it from that standpoint, too, that it's more than just about music. It's, uh, you know, about this thing that we are now wrestling with, you know, on social media. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're you're correct on that. That's a great point of view. Um, when you think about how it advanced, you, know, you mentioned like these communities online. That really was the catalyst for 
how we surf the internet now and what we do with social media. Yeah. How we absorb information, as you say. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. Thank you for, for sharing that. Well, cool. Once again, like I said, it was, it was a great, uh, conversation. Um, real quick, what are you listening to now? What, uh, what's got your fancy with music? Well, uh, one of your past guests, Ari turned me on to, uh, Joyous Wolf. So I've been listening to, uh, to Joyous Wolf. I've been listening to, uh, the Glam Skank, as, as I've mentioned, uh, and actually, you know, I've been dipping into uh, Patty Smith's body of work. Um, I saw her recently. Just such a powerful uh, performer and just a, a world-class artist. Um, so I've been, you know, yeah, I was at Horses and Easter, but, you know, I've been getting into, you know, more of uh, of her work. Um, so that, that's been real interesting. And, uh, you know, and Cheap Trick. You mentioned Cheap Trick, actually. Saw them not too long ago, so I've been uh, listening to some cheap trick as well. And the new tool just kills. I mean, it's been 13 years, but it's been worth the wait, man. It's a great record. Yeah, I did get uh, a chance to check that out at a friend's house last week. He was playing it, and it sounds fantastic. It, it's just incredible. Check out this band. I'm a. Um, it's a band that's no longer around right now. They broke up recently, like last year. The lead singer's putting together a solo outfit but check out the band biters what's it called biters b-i-t-e-r-s they're kind of like a like if you like cheap trick if you like thin lizzy um if you like you know it's got a little bit of that um la 80s scene vibe to it but it's got a heavy influence of cheap trick and thin lizzy i think you'll really like it yeah and uh, i just heard a little bit of this band called 69 eyes real interesting kind of trippy heavy stuff um, and let's not forget uh, the unfortunate passing of uh, Rick Ocasek in the car. So I've been uh, listening to a lot of his music. Um, now, I would say I'd hear about Eddie Murray too, but I sort of like sour on Eddie's music. Um, so uh, I'd like to get back into some of that because I'm sure there's a lot of Eddie stuff that I didn't hear before that. Uh, that would be awesome too. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, as we get older, our heroes from yesteryear are are going to the other side. You know, Rick Ocasek, Eddie Money. You know, more and more of these artists that we grew up listening to um, are just you know getting older and, and having health problems. And you know, it's it's just a, I guess a, a, a reality check for us and, and a realization that you know nothing is ever is is forever. That's right. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with Eddie Van Halen either. I know Dave's been talking about Dave Lee Ruff and talking about he's the face of Van Halen. Now, I don't know if Eddie's having health problems, but, you know, more health problems or whatever. So that's why, you know, we've got to go out and see these guys when they when they play because, you know, like, you just don't know. I remember when Brady, uh, excuse me, uh, Motorhead played here, you know, the last time. I was like, oh, I'll catch him next time. And then Lemmy died two weeks later. <laughs> yeah, know, I, I had the same the thing. Eagles, yep. you know? you know, yeah. I, I was like, oh, two tickets are too expensive for the Eagles thing, whatever. And then Glenn Fry died. I'm like, well, I wish I would have spent the, you know, 175 bucks to go to the show. You know? Yeah, no, I, um, the Motorhead thing was disappointing. I had an opportunity to go see Tom Petty at Wrigley Field. <laughs> um, and I passed that up. Um, so yeah, no, I, I've been on the end of of uh, 
of not making the right decision when I was given the opportunity to go see someone live. And then a few months down the road, they, they passed yeah, on. Like people, uh, people make fun of me because they're in like dinosaurs of rock tour. And I'm just like, yeah. Hey man, I don't know how long, much longer they're going to be around. I can check them out now. No, absolutely. That, I, that, that didn't see in their, in their prime, you know? Yeah, no, it's, um, like I said, man, nothing lasts forever. And, you know, when you see an artist like that that we grew up with pass on, you know, it brings back a lot of memories. I had really um, not listened to the Cars in a long time. Like, it's it's got to be over a decade. Um, and then Rick Ocasek died, and I started listening to some of the stuff that I grew up with. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is really good. And then, of course, the Fast Times at Ridgemont High scene with, with Phoebe Cates absolute staple of pop culture in that scene the whole movie is mm-hmm. um and then i'm like wow i'm like yeah i, I totally remember that and then listening to i mean i remember um hearing shake it up all that stuff growing up in the in the early 80s mid 80s and and just the great song songwriting um really great sonically that's one thing that people really haven't mentioned about the cars is great songs mm-hmm. Real simple songs, but how they really recorded their music. I mean, it really sounds great. I mean, even back then, it sounded awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and Rick and the Cars were video pioneers, right? As well. And yeah, uh, yeah Rick was a you know sort of you know Renaissance man in, in a lot of ways. And you know, I'd invite people to uh, to check out my remembrance of him on uh, 360degreesound.com because he was really important me yeah i was you know 14 15 when the cars first first broke and it was like it was from the future like everything i was listening to at the time seemed like it was from some glorious past you know but the cars were like these guys are clearly from the future and it felt like it was just for me and my friends you know right um then it had that you know element of you know of 50s you know song structures and 70s guitar based rock but it was you know sort of like towed the 70s into the 80s, you know, with synthesizers and keyboards and, you know, expressionist uh, lyrics and, and all that type of thing. And I was just like, what in the world is this, man? This is awesome. Yeah. Um, so I was really sad to, to hear it was passing. And, and getting back to Van Halen, the thought of never seeing Eddie Van Halen on a stage again is is something that I'm starting to, to realize that that actually may be a possibility. Yeah, you know, and and that's and that's why even though I was never, as you know from the poll, not a big fan of of Van Halen, you know my, you know my thing has always been if Eddie Van Halen is playing, the room should be packed, you know, because this is like having the opportunity to see Hendrix play, you know, and these great guitar innovators, and you know, I, I hope he, he's able to play you know, and continue to tour and that type of thing, you know, because he's just that important to fans of, you know, guitar rock. Think about what Van Halen meant to pop culture in the eighties. I mean, that was a scene in itself, you know, I mean, you have this guitar player that just changed the face, changed the game of guitar playing with the tone, Mm -hmm. with the way he played. And then Van Halen had the image, right? The way they dressed, the way they looked daily Roth was this, caveman with blonde hair um, that just had this huge personality. 
you had videos that meant so much to that time. Hot for Teacher, mm-hmm. um, the, the oh, Panama, Panama, all that stuff. I mean, I remember the painters' caps, the T-shirts. I mean, it was a rite of passage when you were a kid walking around school with a Van Halen shirt or a Van Halen mm-hmm. poster in your room. I mean, it was you know the, the U.S. Festival '83, the huge impact on rock music after that festival, and how Van Halen was the the headliner, and how 1984 was a catalyst of so many things in that decade. Um, you know, from a band that went from guitar base to uh, added the keyboard element, um, mm-hmm. and, and it still maintained its fan base. Um, and say what you want, you know, I know you're not a fan of Sam Halen, Sammy Hagar, Van Halen, but to have a band, and, and, and that's mostly because of Eddie. You know, let's not forget, I right. mean, you know, Daley Roth was a huge personality. So was Sammy Hagar. But the reason mm-hmm. why they were able to maintain a level of popularity with Sammy Hagar after Daley Roth left was because of Eddie. And, mm-hmm. you know, even if you just listen to the guitar in the Sammy Hagar era, I mean, again, it's innovative. It's, 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 it's great. It's fantastic. He, he, Oh yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I just had a thought while you were talking, I'm like, how cool would it be to just have the guitar parts from every Van Halen song with mm-hmm. no bass, no drums, no vocals, no keyboards, just here, Eddie, just raw. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I'd love to try that. I don't think there's been a guitar player since Eddie that's changed the game. I mean, I mean, Jack White's got a little bit of a different style, but it's also a familiar style, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's kind of retro-inspired. You yeah, know, it's got, yeah. got that cream of Clapton sort of thing going on. Right, right. But changing how people played and how their instrument was, how their instrument sounded. I mean, I'm, I've read interviews such as one with Neil Sean, how Van Halen was on tour with opening up for Journey, and he would watch Eddie every night and he'd be like, how's this kid doing it? Like, what's this kid doing? Like, mm-hmm. show, he even asked him, like, show me how to play that. And if you look at Journey's guitar tone after that tour, it's completely different. Listen to the song Stone in Love by, by Journey on Escape. Listen to Keep on Running off that album. Listen to those, those deep cuts, uh, Mother, Father, um, all those songs off of that album, even into Edge of the Blade and some of the songs off Frontiers, that's Eddie Van Halen right there. I mean, that's how much mm-hmm. he impacted all these guys that were playing in the 70s wanted to sound like that. They wanted to have that 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 tone that he had. And just to... Yeah, the only other guy that I can think of, you know, maybe be the Edge, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. But that's more of a technology thing than, than really, a you know, a technique thing right yeah it's just sad to realize as you know being a van halen fan from that first moment i heard running with the devil when i was seven eight years old to wow. knowing that uh th- that might be it it might be done because the opportunity was there this summer to do it and there was this huge talk about having michael anthony come back and do it and so you know it's if nothing's announced after, if they don't do it next year, I think it's, I think it's done. I don't think, I don't see it happening. Yeah. So. That'd be great to have, have Michael back. I mean, I just, I've never understood what happened. You know, why, why he's so you know, pushed out of that thing. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm 
hoping to go to CES this year, and just so happens that David Lee Roth is doing a Vegas residency uh, during that first week in January or second week in January when uh, CES is happening. So, oh, there you go. It would be cool. Yeah, cool, cool to see uh, David Lee. I don't. I mean, I, that guy is amazing. Like, I've listened to his podcast. And, I mean, <laughs> that's just off the chain. I love that guy. Yeah, no, he's definitely a great listen to for his podcast. A brilliant guy, a, a, just a genius of creativity. Just how he explains things and how he presents a story is is yeah. remarkable. He's just he does an yeah, excellent his background. Job. Mm-hmm. His background, you know, sort of his blog build. I had no idea, you know, uh, you know that he was uh, just kind of came out of that kind of vaudeville tradition. Uh, I guess it, that that shed new light on you know why a barbershop quartet breaks out in the middle of I'm the one, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Happy trails. You know, have a diver down. Yeah. Right. You know? oh, um, yeah. So <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, you look at a lot of their influence and yeah, you know, you hear, you know, artists in the seventies and in some of their songs, but you really hear a lot of Dave Clark five. You, li- you really hear a lot of beach boys, mm-hmm. especially in their background vocals. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that I mean that's an unsung hero of Van Halen. Certainly in the in the Dave era, you know, was you know the you know three and four part harmonies that they yeah. did. I mean, think incredible. about that. And yeah. this, you know, Eddie and Michael as a background vocal tandem, you know, unrivaled. Think about rock, that. You know, three four part harmonies. This guitar legend just shredding, and this maniac lead singer. You know, I mean, it was the whole package. It really was. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, think about that. You know, I mean, usually bands are made up of, you know, the singers front and center and you have the guitar player because all the guitar players and then drummer is usually the third and the bass is, is like a forgotten guy in most bands. Right. And this was just mm-hmm. all four guys just taking it to you and playing and, you know, creating a whole music scene. I mean, they were predominantly responsible for creating that L.A. scene. You know, they came out of that yeah. in the late seventies and then all those bands started playing the clubs and, and, you know, Van Halen was a huge catalyst for that. I mean, you even look at the, the U S festival in 83, the two opening bands were LA based bands, quiet riot and Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. Um, That's how I was really, uh, David Lee Roth had a cameo in the dirt, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the Motley Crue uh, movie. Because you know those guys, you're absolutely right. They set the set the table for right. you know sort of the glam metal uh, that came later in the '80s with L.A. Guns, and Quiet Riot, and Twisted Sister, and, and all that. Tommy Lee mentions in the dirt. I think it's Tommy Lee. How David Lee Roth could walk through a room of people and at a party, get bumped and knocked into, and never spill the cocaine off of his mirror. He's like, he could walk from one room to the other. Even if that's apocryphal, that's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) But just, just to have that, that, you know, that comment, like he can, you know, he can get knocked into and pushed and just maintain and not spill an ounce of the drug off of the mirror that he was going to snort the lines off of. That's, that's pretty funny. There's a beverage here, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, man. It's been a blast once again. Um, Again, Chris Bisha at 360 Degrees Sound on Twitter, 360 degreesound.com for his blog. 
Uh, check out the latest blog about Rick Ocasek. It's really cool. His other blogs are very well written and very well presented. Um, great guest, as always. We've got some things cooking between us that uh, we hope to bring with you very soon. We'll be talking about that offline and look for that in the future. But once again, thanks, thanks Chris. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate you doing this. Once again, this is Jay Scott, and you're listening to The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast. We'll talk once again. Thank you. Thank you.